So check this out. If blackness is a one word to say black culture, whiteness should follow the same linguistic suit, right? Whiteness should be white culture. What is white culture? That's the wonderment. What is white culture, right? Because, and so check this out. So years ago, I did this project, just my own little intellectual pursuit, where I just texted the white friends in my phone book on my phone. And I just asked the question saying like, you know, there's black pride. There's LGBTQA pride. There's pride in these different marginal groups. But what is white pride? Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr., and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. What's going on, Humanized family? We back at this thing again. You guys are so blessed to have Emily and I here, but you even more blessed, if that's a thing, to have our amazing guest, Sadari, here to um, to really speak. But before we get into all the introductions and all that, I really want to get back to the disclaimer um, and let you guys know that we have formed, Emily and I have formed a relationship with each other and have asked our guests permission to dive to delve into these conversations. So please don't just walk up on the street and start talking about um, critical race theory and all these other um, things that could actually cause you harm if you do it the wrong way and it could make a situation much worse. So that's the disclaimer from Humanize today. So Emily, let's get to work. Derry, welcome. Thank you for being here. Yo, thank you for having me, for real. It's, uh, I, I would say this is our most um, rescheduled <laughs> podcast <laughs> of all time. Life happens, you know? <laughs> the anticipation was building, yo. D- Dari knew what he was doing. He was in concert. He was like, oh, I'm not coming out yet. You know what I'm saying? I like it. I like it. Gotta keep the fans waiting, but give the people what they want, of course. Exactly. Give the people what they want. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so we have Derry Matthew Baraj here today, and we are going to talk about kind of this this intersection. I think it's a really important topic, um, and I'm excited to learn about it, of professional standards and whiteness. So we're going to kind of examine um, examine this topic. I mean, I guess even before we go into that, I just want to check in with you both today and see how, I mean, we're, we're recording on a Tuesday morning. How, how are your weekends? Like, what is, what is life like for you right now? So I just returned back from an area of Northern Wisconsin uh, called the Apostle Island uh, with my partner and her parents and, you know, the water, the, 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 the sun, you know, the green foliage, you know, so like, I'm, I'm feeling good. I had my own little the mosquitoes. Oh my gosh, you know it. Yeah, there was there was a bit of that. There was a there was a bit of that. But we were covered, you know. Uh we were fighting the things off with some, you know, with some sprays, some of them stretchy bands that you put on your wrist. So we were covered. It was such a blessing to get away for a little bit and I'm feeling good going into this conversation. But Courtney, your weekend, bruh. Man, family. Um <laughs> Believe it or not, your black man was in Utah on the river in 115 degree weather for a week. You know, so I just recently got back. Yeah, consistently, hundred at least over 105 weather consistently. That kind of makes me want to throw up. Yeah, and so I um had a lot of time to reflect. I mean, it was a beautiful thing, to be honest, you know. I was really blessed to have had that experience, to have... um to be at one with my thoughts and to just really plan and to really get excited for this interview and to plan to just think about the work that that I'm doing in my life right now. Even with the heat, you know, it was really calming. It was really something that motivated me to to extend and facilitate the the um, others coming to that space as well. 
others that look like me, you know, others that come from similar backgrounds, others that may never see something as beautiful as that, you know? And so I don't take it for granted one day that I saw what I saw this past week. And um, I'm in a vow that we got to extend those, those spaces out to, to everyone, you know, and not just, not just a few, you know? So yeah, that, that was my week. Yeah. Mm, and it was interesting how you began with, uh, you know, black man in Utah. So it looks like we had similar, similar weekend experiences of being yeah, black yeah. in a predominantly <laughs> white area and, yeah. um, and the feelings and the noticings that come from that. Yeah. Yeah. You guys were just in nature and enjoying beautiful outdoors, which was, you know, the opposite of my experience because we were in quarantine. My kids were exposed. So we were just hanging out this weekend. We got to experience what happens to kids when they can't go anywhere, which yeah. is Not so good. fun. Not good. <laughs> um, bonding really yeah well yeah i mean there's the kids and then there's like i get to see this has been the, like the story the last year and a half what what my true colors are when i'm really stressed it's uh it's been humbling i think my self image has uh been properly eroded and humbleized of like oh i can be a real horrible mom when i'm stressed out and like there's no resources left. So, but I sp- throw myself into house projects. That's my, um, and gardening, try to stay productive that way. <laughs> well, thank you both for telling me about your weekends. I love, I just need to know where people are coming from into the conversation, you know? So you're coming from the wilds. I'm coming from the other room. Um, <laughs> A different kind of wild. <laughs> totally different kind of wild so yeah Derry so Derry and I are colleagues we've um, interfaced in some communities before we both have a uh, background in communication we both do work with DEI and just based on some of the conversations that I've had with him before around professionalism and whiteness and these kind of um yeah, it just seems like a really important and relevant conversation, especially as so many businesses, and I think it's wonderful, so many businesses are trying to figure out their way forward with inclusion. And this is a really big part of it. Like, it's not just unconscious bias trainings, right? It's like, this is this is what it looks like, you know, for people's experiences. Um, so based on those conversations, I was like, you got to come talk with us on Humanize. And so I'm going to let you introduce yourself and um, yeah, just tell us a bit about yourself and how you got here and into the work that you're doing. Yeah. So as you introduced me, Derry Matthew Barrage, and I'm originally from Southern California, although I am currently in Milwaukee. And so my come up was such that, you know, I'm from a household where, granted, my father was around, but my parents divorced in my elementary. and which is to say is that I lived in a household primarily of women, you know, a mother and older sister. And and from the onset, that experience was one of class, gender, uh, family structure, uh, the, all of which I didn't make sense of fully until later in my life. And so my environment growing up was <laughs> very mixed race-wise. I had friends from different racial types. However, it wasn't until my interactions, my deeper interactions with my grandparents, my mother's parents, where I had learned this concept of what it is to be a proud Black man, but adversely so. And so what I mean by that is... Okay, tell me. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Here's what a proud Black man is, and here's how you do this. It's what you don't do. Proud black men don't do this. And you, young Derry, happen to do those things. And so, <laughs> uh, oh, <no. laughs> yeah, and so like this idea of what it means to be, what blackness means in different environments has been part of my story. Coming from Southern California to doing my schooling, my higher ed schooling in Colorado, did my undergrad at Colorado State University did my my master's 
uh, pursued my master's at uh, CU Boulder, University of Colorado. And so from the standard of what a blackness that was set to me from the onset of my youth, as I reflect on my story, it's never been one, at least I've had a track record of moves that a proud black man would not do. I went to not one, but two predominantly white institutions. And since you, in many ways, are a product of and perpetuate your environment of being in a predominantly white institution, I also dated women that were white, not exclusively, but that was part of my story. And so when it came to the context of working after my schooling, I <laughs> ended up back working at Colorado State University, you know, the, the predominantly white institution. And I still had to figure out what it means to be Black in a space that not many people look like you. Not many or <laughs> no one else. No one else is actually the more meaningful and more accurate uh, phrase because my professional experience has been one where I've, where I've been the first or the only Black person. And a lot of times the youngest, too. So now we're talking about like the intersection of age, too. Right. Let me ask you a quick question. So what does that mean you had to figure it out? Like, what does that what does that actually look like? The figuring out or at least the making sense of if I don't look the same as others, there must be a difference. And how can I not look down on my difference, but uplift it to honor it? There's this uh, author that said that, like, only be you because everybody else is taken. You know, you can't be anyone else, right? And so this idea of me having to make sense of my Blackness is that I realize that I am behaving and thinking and noticing different things than what my white counterparts are thinking, doing, noticing. And so what does that mean for how I conduct myself and navigate, uh, navigate moments and navigate <laughs> my own thoughts when I look in the mirror, figuratively and literally. You know, do I see, do I see beauty? Do I just see, um, to put it simply in that manner, what are my thoughts on difference? What's my disposition, my attitude toward being different? Is it one that's positive or one that's negative? I mean, or, I mean, of course it's complicated because being Black in America, you have that, you always hold those two things. You always hold that like, yeah, I love being me, but my, being me comes with some challenges. <laughs> you know, I know anybody can say that about themselves, but but historically, institutionally, you carry complexities in those ways. And did you have a um, a guide or community or scholars that informed that grappling with like what does it mean to be different or what is difference or difference is where meaning exists and i say that because so during my undergrad i studied communication studies and i took this one course called rhetoric and western thought and granted the instructor was i mean he had a lot of privileges afforded to him being a tall white man so I know that there's an asterisk upon the statement that I'm about to reveal, but he did say that a hard life is a meaningful life, which is to say that if things were just straight easy, there's nothing to really like understand and make sense of and, and derive meaning and ultimately derive gratitude. And so when you encounter the challenges that difference brings, I think you have a richer story to tell. And I think that it's one of the reasons why Blackness has been colonized, it's been commodified, try to be replicated, because I think there's this understanding that there's a richness in Black culture that is so unique and so specific that people want to mine that, you know? <laughs> oh, Courtney, you know it. Courtney's coming. <laughs> Ooh. I'm lacing. I'm lacing these Jordans up, bro. <laughs> yo, keep yo yo yo, Derek. Keep going, baby. You 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 hit it. Please continue, my man. <laughs> yeah. So 
you know, talking about the intersections of professionalism and whiteness, well, I wouldn't necessarily say it's an intersection. I think professionalism is whiteness in capitalistic form. But I had an experience, or at least multiple times, I've had the experience of having white colleagues. And I say that because my professional experience, just to ground it a little bit, is my whole career has been me operating in predominantly white spaces. And three of my four career points in my journey, I've been the only black person. So I'm coming into this conversation with some experience here. And it's been interesting because the way I talk, depending on the community, some people can say, oh, you talk white <laughs> or you talk super black to their understanding, right? Whatever super black is, right? And interestingly, I've had colleagues, mainly supervisors, who have replicated my style of speech. So for example, I say dope. You know, I say, oh, that's dope. And when we first met, they weren't saying dope. But after a while, they start saying dope and they start replicating my style of speech. And I think this this idea, I mean, granted, it's like, wow. I mean, I think it speaks to how rich the Black culture is that it has influence. You know, as it could influence someone's literal way of speaking. And your way of speech, this is from like, a, um, from the theorist Franz Fanon, but like your way of speech is a way of understanding. So Blackness influences how white understanding even operates. Yeah. I think it's probably worth us like taking a moment to just define, maybe you're saying there there aren't separate definitions, but like the, the three terms that I'm I'm seeing us kind of using are, well, we haven't used white supremacy, but like whiteness, white supremacy culture, and professionalism. Are those three separate things? Or like what is what is whiteness? We haven't really taken a lot of time to break that down. And I'm I'm curious to hear from from both of you what you feel. Yeah, I guess what what is that? And also white supremacy culture, is that a separate thing from whiteness? Uh well I've had a I know I'm the guest, but just to kind of open it up, Courtney, my man, do you have any thoughts on the intersections and this and distinctions between whiteness and white supremacy culture? Okay. And first of all, you are a guest. Anything goes here. Yes. <laughs> you guess. feel free to ask yes. questions. Yes, hundred percent. So there's no there's no boundaries on the conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there are no boundaries. There's no boundaries, bro. Um that question brings up something for me because if you're asking me the definition of it, I can give you separate definitions. If you're asking me what the definition was intended to be, it's all inclusive. You know, it's like yeah, whiteness, white supremacy, white pro uh, professionalism, all that shit means the same thing to certain people, to certain people who hope that we can go back to to certain times because the dehumanization of people of color um, made it so that just because of the color of our skin, we were not professional. Just because of who we are, we couldn't exist in a, in a system um, that that wasn't built for us. So those three words are one and the same in my mind, you know? So to try to separate them, it's like, um, you, 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 it's, it's not like oil and water, you know, like one is not going to want there. It's, they're all one, they're all one, you know? And so for us to, to change that, the system has to be dismantled. There's no more time to reform. It has to be dismantled. You know, and, and and so all of that has to be dismantled, torn down, um, replaced, um, destroyed, so that individuals can truly see, like, redefine. Let's redefine what professionalism looks like. You don't have to. You don't. You don't have to look a certain way, talk a certain way, be a certain way. Professionalism, sh in my definition, sh should be: How do you make the person feel who you're supposed to be servicing? My example is: If I if, if I'm a if I'm a physician. Professionalism should be how did my patient feel, not what I present as to the patient, if that's making sense. You know, like if I come into the room and I'm completely naked, that's not professional because I've made my 
my client, my patient feel uncomfortable. However, if I come into the room, you know what I mean, like with with long hair or with sneakers on, and I am in my element and my I'm I'm servicing my patient. Now my patient is feeling the professionalism of my art. Because I think everything you do should be in service of the person that you're in front of and not what you look like and uh, an appearance. And because race is a construct, because race is an appearance and it was created in this country, we look like we are not professional because we look a certain way, talk a certain way, move a certain way, dress a certain way. That, In my definition, that's not professionalism at all. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, Courtney, man. You're whoo, you're heating up the airways, brother. So um well let me go back to how you began. About saying like how whiteness, white supremacy, and professionalism are analogous to one another. They're you know, they're stewing in the same pot there. Off top, I agree. I do contend with one thing though. Mm, do I love it. It's more and I guess it's not so much of a contention as it is a mere wonderment. So check this out. If blackness is a one word to say black culture, whiteness should follow the same linguistic suit, right? Whiteness should be white culture. What is white culture? That's the wonderment. What is white culture, right? Because, and so check this out. So years ago, I did this project, just my own little intellectual pursuit where I just texted the white friends in my phone book on my phone. And I just asked the question saying like, you know, there's black pride. There's LGBTQA pride. There's pride in these different marginal groups. But what is white pride? What is white pride? That doesn't sound good. I know it. <laughs> you, see, you, you see that? You see that? That's you see right. what you just did? You see, like, you see the visceral response right there shows that the pride that the country was built on was was steeped and built in genocide. And that's why individuals do not like this. White pride is not coming from a place where, oh, we were once pushed down and we were the underdogs and we came out like it's a no, it was it was created through murder. Right. And so uh, that's where my friends had went to they went to the place of like uh Nazi Germany, KKK. And so what is our White people not allowed to be proud of being white. You see, I didn't. I didn't say you shouldn't be proud to be white. You know, because you couldn't. You you were born how you were born. You 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 had no assignments. You could not check a box to say I want to be born a white person or a black person or a Hispanic person or anything. However, acknowledging your whiteness, acknowledging your privilege, and acknowledging your station in life is the issue. So if you're proud of the fact that you are now fighting for individuals that are more vulnerable for you, you should be a proud white person. But just to be proud that you're white, that is the issue for me, if that's making sense. I'm proud to be white. I'm proud of my culture. Brother, right there inherently, I don't think you understand your culture. See, black people, Caribbean individuals, POCs at, at large, Native Americans, the pride comes from longevity, resilience. Though we, we're not supposed to be here right now, right? So the pride come from a, a like a fight. I'm proud to still be standing. I'm proud to still be here. You tried to take me out. I fucking lived through a genocidal era. Civil rights was not like oh, a, a blip in history. That was a systematic, you know what I mean? It was a systematic situation where individuals tried to suppress culture, while simultaneously benefiting from the suppression. So to be to, to still be thriving somewhat, you know, to still be smiling, to still be here, <laughs> you should be proud. You know, like like that's that's just the reality of the situation. But if you're if I'm a white man, I'm saying I'm proud to be white, I would love to know what are you proud of? What have you done? So the pride is sourced differently. And the pride subsequently is enacted differently, I suppose, between BIPOC and white folks. So these wonderments, these curiosities come up for me. These, this is what emerged when you 
Emily had dropped the question of like, is whiteness white supremacy and professionalism? Are they all the same? And so going back to that question, given what we just talked through, is that with whiteness, I think there has to be an assessment or an examination of what is white culture? What is that? And is that something that white people can be proud of? And I think that's a little different than white supremacy because supremacy, from the sense of the word supremacy, there's a there's an elevation to it, an aboveness, if you will. You know, so that's so that's the dark side to the super dark side, no pun intended, I guess, of whiteness. And so I think like if white people want to figure out themselves, I guess, I think we have to start with that question of what is my culture being white? And because, I mean, so based on what Courtney's saying, it's like it's a culture of doing wrong in the world. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and 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 doing and engaging in steps to atone for for that harm but is it exclusively that right but now when you talk about professionalism it's like how has whiteness and white supremacy entered the workspace and so now we get into the waters in which we all swim because those waters have have covered the global stance uh, softly global, I can say. Let's just say national. The national stance of how we are supposed to perform and conduct ourselves, our expectations, and our goals in a work environment. Huh. Wow. You see, if it, that, that's a great question because when you're talking about um, whiteness and white supremacy and um, professionalism, we can go step by step through every system that is in place, whether you're talking about healthcare, whether you're talking about housing, whether you're talking about um, education, whether you're talking about mass incarceration, it's all an attempt to, to, to protect and to make sure that we keep a space. Like I was saying, when I went out to the woods, you know, there, when we growing up, you know what I mean? That, hey, that's some white people shit. The, the older I get, I'm seeing it's not white people shit, it's access shit. I don't I don't have the access to that. I don't have the I don't have the time to spend a week because I'm fighting poverty. I don't have the time to go out there because I don't have health care. And just in case some shit happened, I can't die on the river. It's just everything, every system that's set in place cuts out the access. And it's not by chance. It's a brilliant design. White supremacy is a brilliant system. It's a brilliant system by design to keep to 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 make sure you have it's, it's like a secret club that people of color cannot get into. And so now that we're getting into it, people, as we see with the news, they don't like that, man. Why is it a fight for the FAIR Act? Why is that a vote? Why are we fighting for that? You know what I mean? Like, I don't understand why that, that doesn't make sense. It's because now, so you're gonna have a filibuster. So I can waste time and in hopes we can figure out some loophole so we don't got to really give that and we can waste so much time that something else happens and our attention is diverted. It's a plan. It's by design. Poverty is by design. The lack of is by design. It's not just, oh, yeah, you're poor. You're poor. So earlier you were talking about being black. You should be proud of. But that comes with something. So that's the dichotomy right there. There's a difference in that, right? So now it should, like you had a professor who was talking about if you don't have a struggle, you don't appreciate nothing. Uh, I agree. But like you said, I contend a little bit. Because if you have a struggle that's superimposed on you from birth, that's that's generational. Like I said in many episodes past, I can't go hiking without feet. Or it's really difficult for Emily to carry me on her back when we're both hiking. So now you've made it a super struggle. And then you're going to say, oh, it's black people problem. Why they can't be educated? Why are all those black people living in them ghettos? Why can't people of color um, get a good health care? So you created a problem and now you're blaming a victim. Oh, absolutely. So now crime is on an all time high. 
but you've created an environment where we got to do what we got to do just to eat. Black on black crime is an issue. No, brother. Black on black crime is just that I live near you, Derek. And if you got something that I need, I'm busting your head and I'm getting it. That's what crime is. That's the reality, you know? And so that's what, when people say that slick shit like, oh, if you don't have the struggle, you don't appreciate success. True. True. But if we both start on the same level and I'm struggling, yes, I appreciate that. But if you if you given a car and I have to walk, that's a different struggle. So that's why when we're talking about pride, we're talking about resilience, we're talking about things that we should be celebrated. That's what I talk about, the BIPOC culture and the BIPOC community. That's what it comes always comes back to. Why are we still here, Derek? Please ex- explain to me how the hell we are still here. I'll shut up. I'll wait for that answer. <laughs> Well, man, I'll tell you very simply. Greed. Greed, fear, <laughs> is why we still here. So if we think about the context of, of, of a work environment, right? The reason why I had posited, initially I said whiteness plus capitalism. But given what we were talking about earlier, let me separate that a little bit and say white supremacy plus capitalism equals professionalism. Because how can we conduct ourselves and our expectations, our goals, and all sorts of stuff, and and have people behave in ways that get ultimately to the bottom line, right? So production, production. Heck, if you want to like operationalize Kanye West, you know, song uh, "New Slaves." It's the idea that like we are operating in ways only to produce for the sake of a few, of a few folks, you know. And so I think that why we're still here is that I think we're swimming in these waters where capitalism has its benefits. I don't want to say as like I'm a complete, let's remove the system. However, is that capitalism has, or economics rather, has infiltrated our our own behaviors and our own mindset of what it means to have a prosperous life. And so because much of life boils down to just two things, it's either our survival or our prosperity. You know, the moves that we do, the moves we make in this life tend to boil down to those two things. And so where fear comes in is that we won't be able to survive as an organization nor be prosperous if you conduct yourself in particular ways. In other words, ways that are authentic to you your own culture. And so this is why I've had experiences, smaller experiences like dairy, you wearing your hat the way you do in our environment, it's it's not going to work. Why? Because it threatens the potential prosperity and ultimately survival of our organization if you wear your hat that way. To bigger things, to bigger experiences saying, dairy, we can't have you Regarding budgets, we can't have you create certain line items that honor the people that we're seeking to serve. You know, we can't invest money in that way. So I've had experiences where, when in terms of like crafting a budget, where I want to use some of the money in our budget to create line items in that budget to invest back into the people that we're trying to serve. And I've had talks where it's like, no, 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 don't do that. Because it could threaten our survival as an organization, our prosperity as an organization. And that gets back to what Courtney was talking about, saying his frame of professionalism is that in service to your clients, right? Uh, And so being in service to your constituents, to your communities, to your reason, threatens capitalism. It threatens production. It threatens... uh, a white supremacist view of what it means to survive and be prosperous in industry. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Agreed. A hundred percent. Capitalism in its purest form, I, I, I think it is, is, is amazing. I'm an entrepreneur, How, you know? And so capitalism and entrepreneurship to me is, is, is freedom. 
is, is synonymous with freedom because once you're an entrepreneur, you control your time. And if capitalism is done in a way where everyone is free, no one has to be poor for someone to be rich. However, today, with capitalism, many people have to be poor so a few can be rich. Absolutely. You know, and so that's why when people say, oh, I hate capitalism. No, you hate the form of capitalism that is today. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so with entrepreneurship, it's as I as I framed it earlier, you know, the waters we swim, you know, we've seen capitalism work a particular way, a particular way, which is why. When you insert white supremacy into that, that is the way that we've seen it. And so when we become an entrepreneur, the question is, to what extent do we perpetuate those waters? You know, because if we become entrepreneurs only working for and by ourselves or, you know, we have our own startup, our own business where we have employees, in what ways are we perpetuating those same waters? You know, and so if we want to take white supremacist capitalism by the neck, I think we have to, like, examine our ideas of what it means to be a a professional, you know, or professionalism. Now, to that end, or at least to that process, rather, of course, you, Courtney, Emily, you know, we can model a particular form of a new form of professionalism, right? Where, you know what? I don't look at Courtney any kind of way because he's wearing his hat. Or like, Yo, if you want to wear your hair like that, Emily, cool. And I can like model a new way of speaking, thinking, acting, uplifting. However, when we take into account power dynamics in an organizational setting, me as a leader, I can model all I want, but people know that there's a positional power that exists. We're like, oh, of course, Derry can act like that because he's the CEO. But me, I can't act like that. And so, because, you know, if I curse, <laughs> you know, I could be let go. And so, what's another word? In other words, our attempts to, to reframe or to live a new form of professionalism can also still incubates fear in an environment because of how power dynamics work in a space. You know, this is why, Emily, you and I, we can have an experience where (laughs) an older white man can be talking his talk, disrupting the entire vibe and flow of, of the meeting and we not say anything because we are wondering about what positional power does that person have that perhaps we don't. And so this allows for there to be, uh, I hesitate to say the word villain, but this allows for there to be continuances, or at least a continuity of white supremacist capitalism in work environments. Because I think that you won't have freedom, and I love that word that you use, Courtney, freedom, if there is fear. That that can't exist. That can't exist. When you're distracted by poverty, when you're distracted by fear, when you're distracted by the lack of, how can you be free? They cannot exist. They cannot coexist. Freedom and fear cannot coexist. And this is why... Slavery was such an amazing construct because of fear, fear on both sides, fear that you're going to lose something. So we have to enslave because we don't know. And the fear of I don't know how not to be a slave. So I think this white man is the only way that I can be over here in this new land, taken from my language, taken from my culture. He knows the way. So in fear, I'm going to follow this new system in order to survive. What POCs do well is survive. You know what I mean? And that, and, and like when I kept asking you, what is it about us? Why are we still here? 
It's because we, we have mastered the art of survival. We got that shit down to a patent. We patented that. Like, you can't take that for POC. We know how to survive by any means necessary. However, survival, that shit is done. Like, I have created two companies with the sole purpose to work toward thriving. Yeah, that prosperity piece. Yeah, thriving. Right? I can't survive anymore. We know how to do that. What we don't know how to do is thrive. Mm-hmm. We're scared of thriving because our our brains are set up to recognize patterns. And generationally, we know how to navigate poverty. We know how to make it. So we make it cool to be in poverty. We make it, we make it, we make it sexy to to to, to live in, in substandard conditions. Because we can't read, it's some white people shit if you read. Like, you know, like, if you know certain things, oh, you will fucking sell out. Nah. But now it is my mission, my obligation, my, my, my thing to make education sexy, to make access sexy, to make it so that it's cool to, 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 to live past 21, to not have spent time incarcerated. That's, that's the wave. So when you walk through Harvard or you walk, you come out of, DU or you you come out of these other higher institutions, it's not you know when you go back to your community, it's not look like there he go again with that that bullshit. It's like, yo, bro, <laughs> yo, bro, you did that. You did that. You you're congratulated. And you know, that that's the thing. And you know, Courtney, I, mean, I guess for our for our, our listeners, I guess, <laughs> uh just to kind of like the footnote of what Courtney's talking about here, of like white people shit, is truly an access thing, right? Because reading, the reason why reading is white people shit, because we were kept from being able to read from white people. White people kept us from being able to read. So since they kept reading from us, that means they must own it equals white people's shit, <laughs> right? And so, oh, you also referenced, Courtney, earlier about, oh, the uh, being outdoors, white people's shit. That's meant white people's shit. WSP. No, <laughs> white, no, WPS, excuse me. <laughs> WPS. Uh, so yeah, WPS, outdoors. Why? Because we're not used to seeing trees in our environment. In, Except for we hanging from these shits. Ah, touche. And so it's like, I mean, there's all of these, these, I mean, there's all these re- all this research, all these studies about how you don't find green spaces in impoverished communities. And so you find, like, even driving down the street, you know how you have like the the median is like lined with trees or or sidewalks. You don't find those in, in impoverished uh, neighborhoods. But when you travel to more uh, more affluent neighborhoods that are occupied mostly by white people, you see those green spaces. So you make the link that trees equal WPS, you know? And so it's an access thing. And so, and when black people say, you know, WPS, we're calling attention to two things. One, the access. There is a lack of access. Number one. And number two, that trying to have pride in something that is our own. Like if we can make the distinction saying like that's WPS, we're also saying that what we do is what we it's do, what shit. we have. It's ours. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. may not be much, but it's ours. It's and that and that is something that we can hold on to. And so because simultaneously you can say that, well, if, well, Derry, Courtney, if you just talk chocolate, the outdoors is, as WPS, you're putting your own limits on yourself. Fair. And when it's like, yes, I do believe that to some extent, black people have limited their own experience of this world. However, and this is a big however, is that 
when you have a culture when so much has been taken from you, you just want to, it means a lot to have something to say that is your own. You, <laughs> there, what, what you just talked about, man, brought up ownership for me. You know, um, ownership and we have a grasp on survival, you know, and, and like, I want to also say to our listeners too, that I'm not here bashing or, or saying white people are inherently like just evil people or bad people. I just want to put that out there, you know, because when we, we go in this is like, first thing you hear is, oh man, damn. Not all white people are bad. I never said that. No, they are not. I said the, the, the system that was created benefits white people. That's all. I always go back to that. You, you And so at the end of the day, if you feel as though I'm coming for you and saying that, you know, you are a bad person because a system was created to make your life easier, maybe you are one of the people that are fucked up individuals. I mean, I just going to say that, you know? However, I want to align myself with all the white people that are willing and ready and uh, available to 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 work towards progress, to work towards freedom, to work towards inclusivity, to work towards having a true and honest conversation about professionalism, about whiteness, about living in a world or living in a country that was created to make sure you prosper and someone that looks like me makes you prosper. That's a, that's, that's all I want. Like, I'm not like, I, I, that's, that's what I asked for, you know? And so I just make sure I, I thought about, say, you know what, before we get off, I don't want to have the, on the airspace to let people have a time to think like, damn, Humanize you're just bashing white folk. Nah, I'm hoping to have a conversation that can lead everyone towards freedom. Because like MLK said, if I'm enslaved, that means you're enslaved too, white man. Whether you want to admit it or not. And so that's that's where I, I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, one of the ways that I see that is like, so... I sent you guys the uh, white supremacy culture document, the Tema Kun document, which has been around for a long time. And it kind of breaks down and we can go into this further on another episode, just kind of the, the aspects of white supremacy culture. And for me, as a white person, it's hard. It was like very confusing to read as I, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm kind of like, what is, is there a difference between whiteness white culture, white supremacy culture. Like, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that. And from my understanding, but one way, one aspect that um, is named is that there's only one right way in white supremacy culture. So the belief that there's only one right way to do things. And once people are introduced to the right way, they'll see the light and adopt it. And white supremacy culture won't be adapting and changing. And I think that that's really important in the professionalism world. Um, I mean, I work a lot with innovators and engineers, um, you know, who want to disrupt technology to create these new great things. And I, I see that there's this, this tension of like, there's this overriding, there's only one right way to show up at work, right? Constructive clothes, way that you're speaking, manner that you wear your hair, manner that you wear your hair depending on your race. Because I co-facilitate some work with an Arab American woman who has the same hair as me, curly, long hair. No one has ever told me anything about my hair my whole professional life. And she has many different instances where she was told she needs to pull her hair back. She needs to, you know, not have long hair, things like that. So it's like the conforming, conforming, there's only one right way. And we all know that if we're going to get out of climate change, we're not going to be able to follow one right way. Like we need every single way of knowing at the table. We need, if we had listened to indigenous ways of knowing this whole time, we would not be here. But I am reading this book right now that's about global exploration in the 1820s. 
and how, you know, they're like, the Europeans are coming in and they're mapping the coasts of Canada and stuff. And there is a total disregard for Eskimo, they, you know, in the book they call Eskimos and Indians. Those are the way that they describe them. Their ways of knowing. They had that all area all mapped. They could survive as long as they want. These Europeans came and went, you know, starving on these treks to try to map the the, the coastline in their way of knowing and dying. They would rather like that. It is such like an emblematic experience of white supremacy cultures like those white Europeans would rather die than listen to indigenous ways of knowing which already had the whole area mapped <laughs> and could have saved them and um this multiple ways of of knowing and being and presenting yourself and speaking I, I love this conversation because I do think that that professionalism space is a space where it's hard but we're most likely to start to disrupt white supremacy, because the value of multiple ways of knowing when it goes to innovation and disruption are too big. And again, that leads back to capitalism. So capitalism could bring us through, right? Of like, if we can get that we need multiple ways of knowing there and open up the norms and standards of professionalism to, I mean, I guess it is allow, but in, enjoy that to reap the benefits from that, then it's a, a place of potential disruption you know emily i'm i'm very very it pleases to the to my spirit that you would that you would drop that phrase multiple ways of knowing which fosters which necessitates multiple ways of being and yeah they're one in the same right and and not being threatened by those ways that might be different than yours. And so here's my vision for the reframe of professionalism. It's instead of professionalism, where you're trying to cast a net so wide of like, this is how everybody needs to operate and, and view themselves and others. It should be more of a personal work standard. A work standard that is personal to you, specific to you, unique to you. In other words, a, a, a way of knowing, a way of being that you have alongside others, which creates the multiple ways of knowing and being. And so what I mean by a professional works. Uh, There's a lot of freedom me, in that. <laughs> freedom. Yes. Yes. Freedom is the is the undercurrent. Right. Because the way I define a personal work standard is that it's your own and I mean own to mean like, yes, it is yours, but it's something that you own. It is it is yours, right? To the utmost. It's your own definition of excellence in a work setting. You know, it has this, I, this idea of how do you work to honor others? Going back to what Courtney was saying about serving others. How do you honor others as well as yourself? How expansive is your level of thoughtfulness when solving problems and making decisions. And so if we can have people begin to reflect and identify and communicate outward their own personal work standard, I think we will find a lot of commonalities, right? As and and that can and those commonalities, sure. If people are so in love with the phrase professionalism, fine, they can have it. But like what you're doing, <laughs> but what you're doing is that you're taking a inductive approach to professionalism, saying how can we create it together, right. rather than a deductive approach, top down. Here's what we and we as in like given like just the sheer numbers of white CEOs and white leaders, here's what we in our whiteness, which we also might have some supremacy in there. Here's what we think how y'all should operate yourselves. And so what I'm asking for, and at least what you're invoking, Emily, so beautifully about multiple ways of knowing is an inductive approach to professionalism where we all 
reflect on, identify, and communicate our own personal work standard, which is our own definition of excellence. Yes. You, what, what comes up for me since we just going around with what coming up is I'm thinking about normal history makers, disruptors, you know, all of like history is never created or made by people that do things the normal way. And nothing is normal until it's created and then normalized. When the founders of the constitution came over here, there was no constitution. So there was no white supremacy. So what they created was his- historical. The Constitution is a historical document made by history makers because it was never anything of its kind. So you have Hitler, you have Napoleon, you have Trump, you have Obama, you have Steve Jobs, you have Elon Musk, you have Michael Jordan, Harriet Tubman, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Oprah. All of these people are disruptors. That's the common thread why we will forever be talking about these people, whether you agree with their methods or not. They are disruptors. They normalize something that did not exist before them. So, like, if we expect to create, if we expect to be in history books, like, everyone on this call right now is holding a piece or using a piece of a man's legacy Steve Jobs. That is a powerful thing. He is a disruptor. Right. Right. Like, uh, so as I walk through the world, I will not be okay if I am not a disruptor because what I'm trying to disrupt has to be disrupted for future generations. And everyone on this call, to me, seems as if to be a disruptor or we can't even have a conversation. Because I can't align myself. I can't be in a room with. I cannot waste time. Because what we're walking walking to and working towards is time is of the essence. It's a commodity that must be harnessed in order to get to where we got to go together. So as you guys were talking about that, I was in my seat about to like, like just go, my head's about to blow off. Because y'all brought that like disruption. Come on, man. Harriet Tubman, man. Are you serious? A woman, back in the day, no GPS, brought people from the South to the North to free from slavery. If that's not a disruptor, no GPS. I, I, don't, I, 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 don't, I don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Bro. Derry, if we, like, so we gotta, we gotta wrap up our conversation. No! <laughs> no! I'm always keeping us on Yes, track. you are, you are, you are. I know, we do. I just want to, like, maybe we can all just give some final thoughts. Uh, but, you know, Derry, what's sitting and kind of like turning in my head from what you just said about how to how to rebrand, if we keep this word professionalism, how to rebrand it, it's like this movement to end this concept of are they a cultural fit? and move it towards make the culture fit, you know, make the culture fit where what your group is like that. If, if people do that self-reflection process, they create the culture of, of freedom of, you know, people having their own professional standards. And it, I, I think it's going to begin with tiny subcultures, right? With even within one business, it'll be tiny subcultures, but that can have an effect. And what you're talking about there, Emily. So I've, for a number of years now, I've been in pieces reimagining a whole new organizational model. And, and what you're talking about there of, you know, making people fit into the organizational culture versus the culture fitting the, the person. So check this out. We see it in little ways. On job descriptions, uh, it's usually the last bullet point on a job description says other duties as assigned, right? Well, can we imagine an organization where the last bullet point is other duties you design, where you have the opportunity to shape the role itself and subsequently the organization? You know, like, I think that if we want to go about honoring people, 
We had to allow them to the freedom to shape their own destiny in an organizational context. And so knowing that it will benefit all of us, which is to say is that it is not a threat. It is not because, I mean, golly, y'all, this is where we're coming back to. A personal work standard, the life of a personal work standard is only to the extent where folks who have positional power, aka leaders, feel threatened by that person's work standard. And so soon as people begin to feel threatened by other ways of knowing, by other ways of being, that's when it, there's this thing that comes up in the body of these individuals or the body of an organization saying, uh-oh, this person, this program, this initiative, whatever, can threaten the survival or the prosperity of our organization. So given this threat, we have to now impose our ideas of professionalism. You know, and so that is the key. That is the key. Can we not feel threatened by other ways of knowing and other ways of being? Because as soon as folks feel threatened, they want to react with a greater level of force. Heck, you can see it in the in the context of policing. Police have the authority to whatever level of threat they sense or perceive. They don't have to match it. They don't have to match it. They can supersede it with a greater level of force to stop the threat. And so we see that in organizations too. And so how can we not feel threatened by other ways of knowing? Because things go awry and we rob people of their authenticity, their humanity, of their very freedom as soon as we feel threatened. You know, there's this old phrase that a friend uh, taught me. I don't remember the... Uh, the originator of the of the statement, but it was to the tenor that no longer can we feel threatened while seeking to utterly destroy the thing that threatened us, rather than merely seeking to understand why are we threatened. And so that's why we in organizations have to also figure out or examine within ourselves why was I threatened by Derry wearing a hat in our workplace? Why did I have to seek to utterly destroy Derry's ideas of why he needs to wear the hat? Instead of trying to figure out why am I threatened by the hat, let me destroy Derry's reasons for wearing the hat and let me guise it with the weapon of it's not professional. Man, what's coming up for me as we close, Emily? You know, um, most of the time, Parents are are never ready for their children, but their children are always a blessing. Similarly, there, you know, like Derry referenced, there's um there's a blessing for in a, in every company or organization when you have cultural autonomy and agency, and so if 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 your company can make it so that they birth, they, they, they facilitate, they foster the type of employees that are agents in their own, like what they bring to the company and they have autonomy to, to work, to make that company or organization better. That company will be phenomenal. That will, it will, it, it would, you, you, you would start to address the bottom line. The dynamics of said company, the just the the whole mood, and everyone feels free. And once your company and organization feels free, and they have the buy-in, you can't lose. You can't. You can't. People, <laughs> your 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 staff, your employees will love you to the extent that you have them feel free. Free. That the you know like. That's where true buy-in or loyalty, I mean, uh, love, comes in. You know, set people free. Set people free. And so, like, Lord have mercy. You know, to counteract that threat, that the perceived threat, of course you have to 
seek to understand why are you threatened, but also seek to understand that other way of knowing. That's 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 where you can like honor the difference with curiosity and just have that add to your own toolbox of understanding in this but world. That's the work. That's the work that's right the there. Work. You summed it up. You summed it up. Your 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 respectful curiosity and humble admittance and willingness to just <laughs> for the lack of better words, shut the fuck up. That's the work. That is the work. Well, you summed it up perfectly, Derek. You, that, that's it. You've, you've summed it up. You, you, you shut us up. Like, what the hell, bro? You, 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 you did your thing today, bro. You well, did it. Faith, Emily, Courtney, <laughs> I think there's this the additional ingredient, the little, the, the scallions on top of, of, of this <laughs> load of <laughs> Uh, baked potato here, if you will, is is <laughs> you got to have faith. And what I mean by faith is that like this understanding that we'll be okay. We'll be okay. You know, this Emily wearing her hair like that, Courtney talking the way he does, Derry wearing his hat, it doesn't threaten. It's the realization. It's going to be okay. Yes, it, it's the realization that it's, it doesn't threaten our survival as an organization. It doesn't threaten our pros- prosperity as an organization. We'll be okay. And if people can't have, if leaders can't have that faith, then then no, we won't. There won't be freedom if we don't have faith. Thank you. Okay, Emily, wrap us up. Uh, I think we, I'm packing my bags. I'm out of here. Y'all have a great day. <laughs> oh, thank you, Derry. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, just Dang. so wonderful. I'm going to be thinking about all these ideas for many, many, many days, weeks, years to come. So thank you so, so much. We really appreciate you joining us. Oh, my gosh. I, I, feel, I feel like I just... Did a big workout, a long workout. <laughs> yeah. For the day. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Just take a walk, you know, uh-huh. shake it out. Yeah, we'll, and, and we'll, we, we just finished playing ball. You know what I mean? We just finished playing ball. We, we will go at each other. I love it. We was on the same team. We even, we even battled a little bit in 21 before we played pickup. You know, you, you brought, you, you brought it, baby. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate this, man. Thank you. Felt Thank like, you. felt like uh, the NBA playoffs. Thank you. I love it. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me to play with y'all. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.